I, I want to uh, ask you to imagine something. Imagine that it's 2,000 years ago. It's about sunset there on a Sunday afternoon, and there is um, a, a church that's starting to gather. It's not a big church, maybe 30, no more than 40 people starting to gather, and People are, are chatting, and in the, if you, they don't really have pews. It's in the living room of a giant house, of a very generous woman's house named Afia. And, and in this house, you, you see that there are women and men sitting together and, and, and children and elderly, that there's Jews and Gentiles, that there's slaves and masters. It is really a, a microcosm of the church's ability to unite people. And, and you maybe hear the guitarist tuning his guitar or... Uh, you, you hear that the people are getting ready for the service. One of the, the elders, there's two elders who've been rehearsing uh, and, and sharing the teaching load is, is preparing his message that he's going to sing. And you see people, he's kind of going over his notes in his head. And, and, and he's maybe not as good as the founding pastor. That, that pastor, Epaphras, was an excellent man, but he's been hauled off into, the, the, into prison. And so these other two guys, they, they've stepped in and they're doing a good job to fill the the load and to shoulder the burden and and you can smell in the heavy air of the middle east that there's the wafting into the room the the smells of the meal that they're all going to eat together the love feast that they're all going to eat together at the end of the service and and you can imagine uh there's this sense of expectation and, and suddenly a hush comes over the the room and into the room steps two people one is a man they've never met before his name is Tychicus and uh, Tychicus carries in his arm in his hands three letters, three letters from the Apostle Paul. And Paul's never visited the church, this church before in Colossae. He's never been there, and so they're excited that he even knows that they exist, and and they're excited. One of the letters is addressed to them, and and, and they're excited to devour that and see what God's given the Apostle Paul to tell them. And, and Tychicus, they know who he is. They've heard about him from Epaphras, and these letters talk about Epaphras, and so they're excited to get news about their past who they know has been in prison. But then another man enters into the room. And there is no excitement to see this man. This man is a man they all know, a man who was actually the slave of one of the pastors. He's a man who the church had been gracious to and kind to, who the church had prayed for and shared the gospel with. And this man, Onesimus, had taken advantage of their generosity. He had broken the trust of his master and he had lost his master a lot of money and he had run off. And the first thought in the back of their minds is, what is he doing here? And the elder, the one who's going to speak, is the one who he's broken his trust, has been betrayed and stabbed in the back. And he's trying to figure out what is the right thing to do here. And he just kind of awkwardly takes the scrolls out of Tychicus's hands. And he, to his amazement, he finds one of the letters is addressed to him. The letter, the epistle of the Apostle Paul to Philemon. That is the context for for the, the letter that we are going to work our way through over the next seven weeks here, the, the letter of Philemon. It, I love the letter of Philemon, not just because it's short and simple, but because it's where the gospel meets the ground. It, it's, where, it's where you see the gospel play out in practical ways when there's tension in the community and when there's disagreement and awkwardness and how are you going to reconcile and I love the letter of Philemon because it is such a practical letter. And I have a feeling that you're all going to love it too. And if I could challenge you to 
over the next seven weeks, get to know it. Read through it once a week. Pray over it. Ask yourselves, what is this about? So it might surprise you that our first sermon in Philemon is actually in Colossians. Um, And this is because, as Peter said, Colossians and Philemon were both sent from the Apostle Paul to... Uh, the church in Colossae at the same time. And, and so the, the letter of the Colossians is kind of the context for the letter to, the Philemon, to Philemon. So the letter to Colossians is the literary context. And in specific, this passage that we're going to talk about today, I, I really believe is the context for the whole book of Philemon. That Paul's assuming that Philemon is also going to read this passage in particular and think about it. Let me give you three reasons why, three reasons why, that Colossians and, um, Colossians and um, Philemon are, uh, are going to be, are so intimately connected, and in particular in this passage. If you um, look in your Bibles to Philemon chapter, well, there's only one chapter, chapter one. Uh, you will notice a number of names. So at the beginning, you see the name of a man named Archippus. And at the end, you see, obviously, there's Onesimus in there. But at the end, you also see a man named Epaphras. It's the founder of that church, a church planner who was in prison at the time, with Paul at the same place. You'll notice a man named Mark. You'll notice a man named Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. Okay? And then if you look back to Colossians 4... Colossians 4, you see all of those same names. See Onesimus, that's the the slave who had run away from Philemon, stolen a lot of money from Philemon most likely, and run away and somehow become saved, and Paul sends him back to Philemon. See the name of Onesimus, you see the name of Aristarchus, that's one uh, one of the elders and pastors there at the church. There's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You also see the name of Epaphras. And by the way, you guys all pronounced that like pros and like champs in the, in the reading earlier. Seeing the name of Epaphras, you see the name of Luke. See the name of Mark. See the name of Archippus. See the name of Demas. All the names that we see at the end of Philemon are, are in the Colossians 4. There's, there's a literary connection. These are sent by the same people to the same to the same people at the same time, at the hand of the same people. So you can see there's an intimate connection between Colossians and Philemon. Secondly, this passage in particular that we're about to read, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, has about six or seven words that occur in the book of Philemon. Just these three verses have about six or seven words. Um, of course, there's words that you'd expect, like kurios. I mean, everybody knows that just means Lord. But then there's the nice German-sounding word, splachne. I love that word. That is in the, uh, we'll talk about that word more, that's in the book of Philemon like three or four times. And a couple of the other words, Christate, there's, there's word plays on that word in the book of Philemon. So there's a clear grammatical connection to these verses in particular. But then there's also, I think, a, a very clear conceptual connection. That here is Philemon who, who has his slave meet him face to face, who's betrayed him, who's broken his trust, and Paul is asking him to welcome him back in, and we'll talk more about that as we walk through the book of Philemon. And these, pa- these verses, as we're going to go over today, are about forgiveness. 
I think there's an obvious connection between these two verses, these, or between the Philemon and these couple of verses. I, I, th- I think that these verses in particular are important to understand if we're going to understand the book of Philemon. So we're starting in Philemon in Colossians today, and we will get into Philemon verse, chapter 1, verse 1 next week. But I, I, I want to just spend some time meditating on these words in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Is what God's word says. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. These three verses form the background for the book of Philemon. Let's pray real fast. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that this would bless us. Father, I pray for maybe someone who's here today who has not comprehended the depth and the height and the width of your love for us. That these verses would show them, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, that you are a God who forgives. Father, I suspect for many of us in this room, myself included, these verses give us a challenge and a call and a command to forgive others. So I pray that this word would bear fruit in our hearts today. It's in the name of your Son, our forgiveness that we pray. Amen. Probably a good place to start when we're talking about forgiveness is to define what is forgiveness? And I've had this definition in, uh, in my mind for a long time, and then I was reading this excellent article by uh, John Piper on Desiring God, and then some of you guys saw, I, there's an even better article by Tim Keller in Comment Magazine that I sent out this week, so, uh, and, and both of them somehow agree with me, so take that for what it is, but for, this is what I, how I would define forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up my right to get even. Forgiveness is for giving up my right to get even. So forgiveness means that when someone has wronged me or betrayed me or stabbed me in the back, I'm not going to punish them for what they just did to me. So let me try to clarify this a little bit. If you get in a, a fight with your spouse and you both say, I forgive you, and then you punish them with coldness afterwards, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness means you're giving up your right to punish them. You're giving up your right to get even with them. You're giving up your right to to put them down. If there's someone at church, not that this would ever happen to you, if there's someone at church who maybe sets you off the wrong way and then you start gossiping about them behind their back, that's that's not forgiveness because you're you're trying to get even with them by putting them down behind their back. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up your right. When someone wrongs you, say, I'm not going to give in return. I'm not going to go eye for eye, tooth for tooth on this. Uh, forgiveness is, is not to, to punish someone for what they've done wrong for you. Now, let me, it's also important to clarify what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not foolishness, okay? Forgiveness is not foolishness. It is okay if, if, to forgive somebody, but to have appropriate boundaries, 
So if you want to think about the, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was betrayed by one of these men that we've seen in, in these letters, a man named John Mark. They were on mission together. They were on a, at a very difficult, terrible spot. And John Mark turned tail and ran. I think he actually he apostatized from the faith. And we'll talk more about John Mark as we get into Philemon. But when John Mark comes back around and, and it's time for them to go out again, and John Mark says, uh, Barnabas says, ah, why don't we bring John Mark again? And Paul doesn't want to. I don't think Paul's wrong for, for having some reticence there. Forgiveness is not foolishness. Forgiveness, you can forgive somebody, and we should forgive somebody who's wronged us. But it doesn't necessarily mean that trust is restored immediately. So forgiveness is not foolishness. Let me give you another more personal example. Uh, many of you guys know that when I was candidating to be the pastor of this church, maybe two or three weeks before that ha- well, a little bit before that happened, um, there was a, a man from our former church who um, got on Facebook and threatened to kill me and my family and said he had, uh, said he had bought a gun and he, he had our addresses and I knew he had our addresses because I gave him the church directory. Um, I got online the next day and said, after we got the authorities involved, and we said, we forgive him. Nevertheless, I, in perfectly good conscience, have a restraining order against him. (laughs) I would hope you would all think that's a reasonable thing to do. Forgiveness does not mean foolishness. Forgiveness does not mean that trust is restored immediately. Okay. Now, we're going to talk more and more about that, but keeping those two categories in mind is going to be really helpful. It's going to be helpful as we understand this. So there's something distinctive about Christian forgiveness. There's actually two things that are distinctive about Christian forgiveness. Okay, So there's a distinctive reason that Christians forgive, and there's a distinctive way that Christians forgive. I tried to get on Huffington Post um, this week to just see, like, what does an unbeliever think about forgiveness? And I could only read about half the article. Like, they're just... Something so different about the way Christians think about this. This is distinctive and it's unique and it happens throughout the Bible. We'll talk about a couple of these passages today. So there's a way that Christians forgive. There's a way we forgive and there's also a reason that we forgive. There's a reason we forgive. So let's talk about the reason first. Here's the, the reason we forgive. We forgive because we're forgiven. Look in this passage I just read, Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And that word as can be because or since. So because the Lord has forgiven you, you forgive. So let me tell you a number of things that are true about just that little phrase there, as the Lord has forgiven you. Uh, there's a couple different words in the New Testament Greek for forgiveness. There's um, a femi, which basically means just to leave it alone. So sometimes it's said that God forgives us just by leaving sin alone, just by leaving it alone. But this is actually the word charizomai. I love the, this word. It's a, it is the same word that is the verbal form of the word grace. So this word for forgiveness is literally God's graciousness towards us. It also denotes his generosity towards us his lavishness towards us. That God has generously, liberally, prodigally, lavishly forgiven us. If I could put it this way, God's not a curmudgeon with forgiveness. He's not a Scrooge. He's not holding anything back. He's not 
being manipulated into it because he signed a contract and he didn't read the fine print. No, the forgiveness that God shows towards us is that of a father who welcomes his son home. He says, this, my beloved son, was dead and is now alive. The forgiveness that God gives us is generous and lavish and prodigal and it's overflowing, it's abundant, it knows no end. Which means that the forgiveness that God gives us is not just he forgives us for one thing, right? Sometimes we think that we need to go to God and we need to say, God, would you forgive me for what I said about my spouse? Would you forgive me for what I said to my church or, or, or what I said about my child or to my child or my coworkers? Or would you forgive me for having this thought? But the forgiveness that God gives us is for everything. There's nothing. He doesn't hold back. He's, he's not picking and choosing what he wants to forgive and what he doesn't. God's forgiveness towards us is for everything. You'll also notice that this is a past tense verb, as God forgave. This is one of the differences between our forgiveness and God's forgiveness. The forgiveness that we are supposed to show is present tense. It's ongoing. And I think that there's some truth there, right? We have to continue to forgive. But God's forgiveness is once for all. It's as Hebrews calls it, the once for all sacrifice. Only happens once because it only needs to happen once. Because when Christ said, it is finished, there's not an asterisk there. There's not a footnote there. There's not a, well, except for, no, it is finished means it's done. There's nothing left for God to forgive because he forgave it all by the death of his son. God's forgiveness is total. It's complete. We, We forgive because God forgave us. We also see here that forgiveness involves paying a debt. So the same word for forgiveness, Paul actually already used in the book of Colossians. It says this in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, charizomai, all us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. The nature of God's forgiveness is that God absorbed the debt. See, when you give up your right to get even with someone, when, you, when God gives up his right to punish us, when God gets up his right to get even with us, something has to happen to make that debt okay. Somebody has to pay that debt off. And here's how God paid off the debt of our sin, the death of his son. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that nothing happened. Forgiveness acknowledges wrong, in some cases severe wrong. And yet forgiveness is paying the debt, absorbing the cost of what it would take to forgive. This is how God forgave us. This is the way that God forgave us. If I could point out two more things about this. You'll, you'll notice here in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Listen, God chose to forgive you. God wanted to forgive you. God decided to forgive you. Nobody's twisting his arm. 
Nobody's manipulating him into it. Nobody's, nobody is trying to get the best. No, God chose to forgive. He actually wanted to. This is God's forgiveness towards us. This is why we forgive. And you'll notice here the word I drew attention to it a minute ago, the word the Lord, kurios. That, is, that word was the translation of the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, God's covenant name. And so no first century Jew could have possibly used the word kyrios without thinking of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Here's how God's forgiveness, what God's forgiveness has done for us. It's restored us to covenant with him. It's restored us to relationship with him. It brings us back home. It, it welcomes us in. This is God's forgiveness of us. This is totally countercultural. Totally counterculture. If you, if you talk to most most non-Christians, they will tell you, you should forgive because it's, it hurts you more to hold bitterness against someone than to forgive. So you should really forgive out of self-interest. Now, I'm just going to tell you that's true. It is absolutely true that if you hold on to a wrong that somebody has done for you, it will affect you. So if you guys would have known me in college, you would have thought that I was an angry, bitter jerk. And you would have been right. Because I was. No hiding it. I was angry. I was bitter. I, I was brash. One of my roommates told me not too long ago, I had an edge to me. And here's why. Because somebody had done something to me when I was 12-ish. Uh, There's a traumatic experience in my, in my home life that totally changed me throughout my whole teenage years. And I came to a head that I felt like I really needed to forgive this person. And so when I did, it's like the, the river of anger in my soul dried up. It's like suddenly this, this bitterness, this edge just started to fade. I mean, I still have an edge sometimes. Every now, very rarely. But nothing like I used to. For showing forgiveness to this person changed my life. And I will tell you, that's not why you should forgive. It should not be your ultimate motivation. Let me explain why. Because maybe you think, that sounds pretty good. It's not like I didn't know I needed to forgive that person. When we're angry with someone, it's not like we don't know, yeah, it probably would be better if I forgive them, right? Well, when you're in the middle of an argument with your spouse, you're like, yeah, it really would be better for me to forgive you, right? That's not how we think. We know that to hold on to bitterness and to hold on to anger is not a good idea. We, we know that. We know that it'll fester in our soul, and yet it's an insufficient motivation. Here's why. You would rather be angry than show forgiveness in that moment. Amen? When somebody needs forgiveness, even though we know, of course it would be better to show forgiveness to somebody. But in the moment, the gratification that comes from just holding on to that anger for just a little bit longer, holding on to that bitterness for just another day or two, it feels better, doesn't it? And... Once we do that once, it's easier to do it again and again and again. And bitterness and anger 
will fester in our souls like a cancerous sore. Yeah, you should forgive, and it will be better for you, but that's not the ultimate reason why we forgive. We forgive because we are forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Once for all, generously, liberally, lavishly, our sins are nailed to the cross. And if we have been justified by faith, if we've been forgiven, if this burden of sin is on our, lifted off of our back, what right do we have to hold it against somebody else? If we have been justified, what right do we have to, not con- uh, to condemn somebody else? We don't have a right. Forgiveness, we forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And we forgive as we are forgiven. We forgive in the same way we are forgiven. Look here. It says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Our forgiveness towards others is an imitation of the forgiveness that God has given to us. Notice how this addresses us. It says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That God chose us. He he desired to choose. He decided. He wanted to choose us. He actually calls us holy. And if you are in Christ, no matter how dirty you feel, no matter how filthy you feel, you've been sanctified, set apart, and beloved. If you're in Christ... You are his beloved. And you don't have to earn that. It's not something that, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself good enough for that. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also, you, you forgive because this is who God has said that you are. It says put on then. And that word put on is, is a, um, it's the same word for like putting, robing yourself in something. And this is also a present, ongoing verb. It doesn't stop. So put on then, put on this robe, and here's how you should, you should, here he gives us seven things, seven things that we should put on towards one another. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. And above all these, put on love. Here's these seven things, and all of these things I want you to see all of these are ways that God has treated us. So let me give you, let me show you this word. My favorite word that is here is the compassionate hearts. It's, as I said a minute ago, the, the splachna. It's a good German sounding word. I was pointed out when I get it. It's, a, it's, a, it's from which we get our English word spleen. And so it has this very affectionate, visceral feel to it. If you're, if you're ever reading the Bible and you think, oh, this looks like splagna, that, that's talking about this very visceral affection that God has for us. This is, this is what it says. It says, when he saw the crowds, this is talking about Jesus in 936. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He had affection. He had splagna for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It says that we should put on kindness. We should put on kindness towards one another. It's an ongoing, progressive thing. It's the same way that Jesus treated us in the gospel. It says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It says put on humility towards one another. This is how Jesus was was humble towards us. It says in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says that we should put on meekness. And of course, this is again found in how God treats us. It says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly or meek in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. It says that we should put on patience with one another. And of course, this is how God treats us in the gospel. That, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example, if you ever thought about that God is patient towards our sin, as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Of course, we should put on forgiveness, which we've already seen. Forgiveness, the same forgiveness that God has shown us, as we saw in Colossians 2 a minute ago, where it says that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he's nailed our sins to the cross. That, that's what it took for God to generously, liberally forgive us. And of course, we should put on love, love, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's the point in all this. If you want to forgive somebody, you have to have a posture of forgiveness. There's no way you can just forgive somebody for one thing without being a forgiving forgiving person. If you want to forgive somebody for wrongs that they've done against you, you have to be a forgiving person. And I don't know of any way to become a forgiving person without relishing the forgiveness that we have in Christ. I've told you guys some of this. We talked about it in our Bible study a little bit on Tuesday. We look like Jesus by looking at Jesus. We forgive like Jesus. We become forgiving like Jesus. How? By looking at the forgiveness and the grace that is in the cross. We forgive because we're forgiven, and we also forgive like we are forgiven. We forgive in the same way that God has forgiven us. And I love here how he says, if, if one has a complaint against another. I think he probably could have said when one has a complaint against one another, right? If or when someone has a complaint against one another, You should forgive. Why? Because you already have a forgiving posture. If you want to forgive somebody for the wrongs that they've done against you, you have to be a forgiving person. Forgiveness doesn't come apart from gentleness and meekness and love. Forgiveness doesn't come 
apart from this uh, affection towards one another. Forgiveness doesn't come apart. And so if you find yourself to be critical and judgmental, you always find something wrong with other people, you're not a forgiving person. Because forgiveness is an orientation, it's a posture that when somebody does something that bugs you and bothers you, whether it's something big or small, that to forgive them really and truly means that you have a posture of forgiveness towards them, that's willing to absorb the cost of what it takes to get even with them in order to show them grace and charity and kindness. Do you understand that to forgive others, it can't just be a one-time thing. That It needs to be ongoing and progressive. It needs to be the way and the attitude with which we think about one another and treat one another. And I am so thankful that we have forgiveness for all the times that we have not been forgiving. Amen? So let me give you guys some, some applications. Let me give you guys some applications. Number one, if you want to be forgiving... If you want to be forgiving, you must be forgiven. If you want to be forgiving, if you want to be somebody who overlooks faults, if you want to be someone who's gracious and charitable and kind, then you need to recognize that this is all that God has done for you. We look like Jesus by looking at Jesus. If you want to be forgiving... You must be forgiven. Maybe you're here today and you don't know, maybe you're here and there's just these sins that are weighing you down and you're recognizing that you have all these things that you've done wrong against God. God is generous and liberal and lavish in his mercy towards us sinners. Do not fear to draw near to him and to throw yourself upon the rock of ages. If you want to be a forgiving person, you must be forgiven. Number two, Forgive, but don't be a fool. Forgive, but don't be a fool. There are some people in our lives who we can forgive, but who that it is holy and right and good that we have boundaries with them. Now, we don't hold those boundaries up as a way to punish them, but rather it's just it's a wise thing to do. So let me give an example. If you look back to uh, the book of Genesis, and you see Joseph is, is the pharaoh of Egypt, and he, he sees these brothers who've come in, and these brothers have sold him into slavery, and I have brothers, I get it. I have six of them. I, I can rank them for which one would get the most. If you, if you look to the story of Joseph, and Joseph's brothers come in, they have no idea who he is. Joseph waits to see if their hearts have changed by revealing himself. I don't think that means that Joseph was waiting to forgive them. There's a distinction between full restoration and full forgiveness. You can forgive somebody while you're waiting to see if their hearts have changed. And that's okay. But I would also say don't use that as an excuse to not forgive them. Don't. Seek out ways to get even with them while you're putting them at a distance. It's okay to sometimes have this distance, but you you still are called to forgive. Forgive, but don't be a fool. Forgive, but don't be a fool. Number three, 
if you are someone who you are trying to be forgiven, maybe you're a parent, you feel like you've messed up with your kid, you didn't do a good job, maybe you're a spouse, you feel like there's these conflicts and you, you, you want to be forgiven, but your spouse is just not okay with it. Maybe if you want, if you want somebody to forgive you, don't make it harder than it has to be. Don't make it harder than it has to be. You see this all the time with people that they, they're saying, why won't you forgive me? And they keep going and doing the same things that they had to ask for forgiveness for. Yes, that person is called to forgive them, but that doesn't make it easy. If you are hoping that the person in the pew next to you is really paying attention to the sermon, if you are hoping that, that somebody will really forgive you, don't make it harder than it has to be. Make that easy for them to forgive you. Make it joyful for them to forgive you. In other words, you've got to change. Don't make forgiveness harder than it has to be. Fourth, or however many I'm on now. Forgiveness is ongoing. Forgiveness is ongoing. It's one thing to say to someone, I forgive you. It's another to continue to forgive them over and over. It's another to have a posture of forgiveness towards them. It's another to face them and be joyful to see them even after they've wronged you. It takes a posture. It's ongoing. It's progressive. It doesn't happen overnight. It needs to be something that we continue to give ourselves to. Forgiveness is, it it can't just be a one-time thing. It, it, It has to be something that's ongoing, that doesn't stop. It just needs to be part of who we are. Forgiveness needs to be ongoing. And whatever number, I don't remember how many applications I had. Whatever number this is, let me just say this. If you have forgiven someone, if you have forgiven someone, and it's wise to do so, you should let that person know. If you have forgiven someone, and it's a wise thing to do so, you should let that person know. You have no idea how that thing that that person has done to you is boring in their soul and weighing down on them as a guilty conscience. You don't know if they're feeling that. And they might be feeling guilty, and they might not even know how to approach it. And often we think, I'm going to wait till that person comes to me to forgive them. But that's not what God did. God didn't wait till we had our act together, till we felt contrition, till we felt, till we felt like we had beat ourselves up. No, it, it, I love the story of the prodigal son, that the father sees the son coming from a long way off and runs and embraces him. There are people in your life who it might not be wise to talk to them and to tell them that you've forgiven them. I'm going to put that on your conscience. But if there is someone who you've forgiven who it's wise to tell them, you should. You should tell them. You should give them that assurance and that, that freedom. I'm not telling you you have to say everything's okay. I'm not telling you that you have to pretend that what they did to you isn't wrong. I'm just telling you to do what the Bible says, to give up your right to get even with them. As I've been preparing for this sermon, I knew that this was going to be one of the first sermons I preached, I think, since the day that you all called me to be your pastor. Um, I've had to say to a number of you 
this sermon is coming and is not directed at you in particular. And then this week, as I was preparing my sermon, I got a text from somebody. And this person is somebody who had come to our, our last church and who had um, grown discontent and um, without, without going into all the details, it's not necessary, who had done and said some really hurtful things and I think not really left in the right way. If anyone wants to see the text, I'll show you. Um, and they said, I am sorry for what I did. This sermon isn't for any one of us in particular, but it is for all of us that we might be known as a forgiving people. God has called us to forgive because we are forgiven. And the question is, will we do so? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have been lavish and generous and merciful and kind towards us. God, I thank you that your forgiveness does not know an end. God, I thank you for the fact that you gave us the story of Philemon to show us what it looks like to walk with people in repentance, to to forgive them. And God, I pray that as we get deeper into the story of Philemon, I pray that, that you would open up our hearts to all that you have for us in your word. God, I pray for anyone who's here, maybe that they're they, they feel the weight of this, and maybe there's this person they know they need to forgive, and they've been holding this thing against them. God, would you help them to let it go? Father, I, I pray that you would help us to be wise with forgiveness. Father, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who has never felt the genuine relief and forgiveness of the cross. Who who has never felt your kindness, who's never experienced your mercy to them like we've described it today, would you open their eyes that they might see and behold the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.